Let's Pod This is sponsored by Roast Scout. Roast Scout is the best way to discover amazing, delicious coffee from some of the nation's best independent roasters. The people at Roast Scout believe that great coffee is everywhere, but since you can't be everywhere, you might miss out. And so they've created a way to bring that great coffee right to you. They work with small batch roasters from around the country to ship fresh roasted whole bean coffee direct to your door each month. Now, other coffee subscription services typically send you just one brand of coffee month after month after month. That's fine, but it's not great. I mean, what if there's something better out there? What if your coffee's soulmate is there in some small town in the mountains just waiting for you to find it? Roast Scout delivers a new bag of coffee to you from a slash let's fix this to get $5 off your first month. Hey everyone and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and I turned the music down too low. Scott's still rocking out though. Dude, sounds great, man. Thanks for being here, sir. Hey, man. In your house. Uh, Yet again. Upper Room Studios. Upper Room Studios. Also, we've got two new boom mic arms. I'm very excited about this. That gives four four arms now. Did I tell you, uh, there was a a friend of mine was over here the other day and came up here for something. There's a bathroom up here, and I think he walked by. He walked by the studio and looked in, and he saw it. He was like, dude, and this is a guy, like, he's, like, not, like, like, he's not, I've tried. He's not into politics. Like, it's not his thing. Mm Mm-hmm. He's very supportive, good friend of mine. He does not listen to the show. He's not going to listen to the show. That's fair. But he knows that we do it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he's kind of been like, oh, Smelson, you got a podcast. Like, "Mm, that's funny. Um, And then he's like, oh, like, you need to say you, like, have a podcast. Like, you're like, if you're playing at it, you're at least playing, like, really right. hard. <laughs> we have the appropriate attire. <laughs> yes. Like, you're, if, you're, if you're just screwing around, you're getting really into it. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of my son, who is six, and is very excited that his, all of his back-to-school clothes are umbro. And nice. I'm like, you're six, but but my inner, like, 12-year-old is very excited about right. your umbro clothes. He's like, I got tights that are umbro and a shirt that's umbro and a jacket. And I was like... Also, why does the six-year-old care about brands? I, I mean that that's like, you. I think you could have a whole podcast like on that, like, a, not an episode. Like you have a, a whole podcast show where I just crying in my beer. Yeah, but uh, I'm bro. Like, but I sell it at Target, and that's better than Under Armour because life really does come full circle. Just the '90s are back, man. Because when I was, you know, twelve, yes, and Umbro was huge. One, it was expensive, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you could not buy it at Target. It was the Under Armour of 1992. Yes. <laughs> yes, and in fact, we uh, we ha- I was in a school play, right? The school plays you do in elementary school. Yes, and uh, my class, the fifth grade class, fourth grade class, fifth grade class, uh, our costume was uh, Umbros. We all had to really, wear it. yeah, because we had a dance that we did to uh, Whoop. There it is. Ooh, if you will, I will. Wait, let's see. How, you're several years younger than me. Five years younger than me. I don't. I, God, I hope not for your sake. How? Are you 39? No, I'm 37. I'm 34. Okay, well, it's closer than I thought. <laughs> In my age, I've forgotten. Tag team back again. Right, right. Check I, it directed. I, let's begin. I know all the words. Party I'm on, party people. Let me hear some noise. DC's in the house. Drum, drum for noise. That's our audience now is cringing, and they're like, "Oh my God, what are they doing?" That's right. Uh, so to politics. Um, to politics. <laughs> Whatever I was going to say is not relevant at this point. But it probably involved some rap. Uh, all right. So this week we have a good 
show for you today for this week. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. We'll do a brief news roundup, and then we'll have an interview with Democratic candidate for Attorney General, Mr. Mark Miles, at the latter half of the show. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, this this is an announcement that is not fully fleshed out yet. Fleshed, flushed, fleshed. It needs body. Announcement that is not fully fleshed out yet. That on the Saturday before the election, so that will be November 3rd, we, Scott and I, and probably some other people from Let's Fix This, are going to host at least one, maybe two or three kind of events that day focused on unpacking your ballot. Now, I know there's lots of organizations that are doing this already, and hats off to all of them. I think I saw Women Lead has one coming up, or the Women's Coalition, uh, or both. Those are great. Go to those. Go to whatever is convenient. We are out of time and we are procrastinating until the very last minute, as I know many of our listeners and probably lots of voters will be. You know, I, I, we say that, right? Like that we're procrastinating against last minute and other people don't. No, we're planning now. a month in advance. But. Well, we are. But I also think, I mean, I think if we're being, if we're being like really honest and this is a this is a hard truth for political junkies like you and me mm-hmm. the saying is that people start paying more attention to politics after labor day right and i think yeah. that that's probably true for major national races mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're talking about who you're going to vote for for like district judge or state representative or like your state attorney general or treasurer or county treasurer i don't think it's at all realistic to think that you know about 4 days before the election is probably when people like I think of I think of families that have like young kids that have to yeah, be picked up from daycare and basically fish to fry. You know, like I think if you're voting, if voting is a priority, and it's like okay, they're having a conversation on Saturday or Sunday before the election. Okay, well we got to vote. Mm-hmm. Who's putting the kids here? Who's picking up the kids there? How are we? What logistically? How does this work? Oh, and hey, you know, babe, do you know who you're voting for for this or right. like you're, like so? Who are I, all these judges? Yeah, right. So I would actually argue that four days before the election is the appropriate time. We're hitting it in the sweet spot. Like that's, I think, maximal maximal impact engagement. Maybe not for the folks listening to this podcast, but all of you supers, you super citizens who listen every week, tell your non-super citizen friends. That's right. I met a listener this morning at Elemental Coffee and uh, and his lady friend, and she was not a listener. And I was like, I'm sure this guy can help you. And I gave her our information. So I believe we gained a new listener this week. Hello, new listener. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming. We're here to talk to you about politics. Um, so that would be exciting. Stay tuned for that. We will put it out on the social media channels at let's fix this. Okay. On everything, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's really about it. I try to do Snapchat and I just, there's only so much time. And well, no, honest question. You can cut this if you want. Do you understand Snapchat? Yeah. Okay. I don't get it. Yeah. I had it for a long time and I just, I I can't check four things. What's the point? It was fine. Well, I liked it, but then Instagram really started cannibalizing all their other things. Like what's better, the, better like, filters? And what? Well, I don't, but what's the point, right, of the of the of the Snapchat? No, Scott, if you're asking the why and the what's the point behind any of these things, you, you're going too deep. <laughs> just enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. I, why do we do many things? I just know that uh, I get told repeatedly that because I have a Facebook account, I'm old. Yes, because my grandma has a Facebook account. However, like 4 billion people have Facebook accounts, and so we have to have them. Well, and it's interesting, uh, playing it fast and loose with the word interesting. Um, <laughs> As we do every week. Right. There's actually um, a number of places, so particularly in Asia, actually, and I think this is true in Africa as mm-hmm. well. Um, Facebook 
like there are countries in the world where Facebook is the internet. Like there's actually, right, yeah. like there's not a word for internet. Right. The word for internet is Facebook. Well, Facebook's like putting up like satellite internet and stuff for yeah. that purpose. Like it doesn't. Um, so anyway, but I, I also, and you're, I'm sure the same way, maybe not since as we discussed, you're three years older than I am. Like I was, I was in college when Facebook came out, when you had to have a .edu address. Yeah, 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 yeah me too. Like you had to have a .edu address to like have an account. Right? I was on it and then I got, I've, so just last week, I had 15 years. Um, I was, but I was on before that and then Wait, I, Facebook's been around for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. I deleted my account and then I got back on like a year or two later. Dang. Weird. I wish I'd kept it from the beginning so I'd have a longer badge. We're old, dude. I need a bigger glass of whiskey. Well, yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, you can throw your back out later. That's how that works. <laughs> All right. Back to our announcements. Uh, so stay tuned for some kind of ballots and bagels and or ballots and brews event. Um, we will probably have maybe both. Some kind of breakfast and then uh, an early afternoon opportunity around town here in Oklahoma City for you to come and basically print off your ballot, bring it with you, and let's talk about it. Everyone's ballot will be a little bit different. Great. We might all have different information. And I think a big thing will be discussing the state questions. Yes. In a subsequent week, not... So maybe not next week. But two weeks. Maybe in two weeks. Yeah. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, before the election for sure, we will have a podcast episode dedicated to the state questions. We will also have a state questions guide coming out like we did two years ago. There's only five this year. God bless us. I know, but I will say this morning at Elemental Coffee, I was doing voter registration and I visited with a political activist. I will not name this person by name. I don't want to call them out, but... um, Hello, activist. But they said to me, there's only five questions and I don't know what, like there's a couple of them. I'm like, I'm not sure what these are, are about. And this is really one of the people that, that you would know. That Scott, like knows that is that like their job is to, is in politics. Oh, and they, ask you they've just been the very air. busy with, with candidate specific things. And sure. they're like, well, I'll get to that later. And it's, you know, they haven't, I think they know what the issue is. They sure. just haven't had a chance to really like dive it down the, like, and the language, contempl- yeah. you know, puff a pipe and be like, well, I think that we should vote yay on this measure. Side note, have you ever smoked a pipe? Yes. What are your thoughts? Pipe versus cigar? I prefer a pipe. Agreed. There was a man today at Elemental that was smoking a pipe outside. He's there often. He's a very long pipe, like a Gandalf style pipe. That's bad. He reads the paper, but he was dressed very professionally and I, it, but it smelled quite nice. He's I prefer my, vanilla tobacco. He's my I, hero. Side, side note, it's bad for your health. Yeah. Oh, uh, just clear. Just for, don't smoke. No one should smoke. It's terrible. It's bad. Don't do it. No matter, there is no safe amount of tobacco consumption. It increases your risk of cancer. Don't do it. But if you're going to do it, consider a pipe and, and when you're outdoors and some nice Lagavulin scotch. That's oh. my recommendation. As of last night, it was quite nice. Also, I recently watched the episode of Parks and Rec uh, where Leslie and... Um, with the little squirrely guy get married. Yes. And it's a two-part episode. And Ron is on TV with Joan Calamezzo and she's yes. passed out from a hungover, <laughs> a hangover. And so he's just answering questions and someone says, what's wrong with Joan? And he's like, she's hungover and pretending it's her allergies. And he said, is she going to be okay? And he's like, wouldn't know. Never been hungover. And the guy's like, really? And he says, when I drink too much whiskey, I cook a flank steak, eat it, Put on a pair of wet socks and go to bed. Let me call. Does that work? Seems to. <laughs> I think my favorite one, Ron Swanson quote ever is uh, 
Any dog less than 50 pounds is a cat. <laughs> Same episode. And cats are pointless. <laughs> what you're going to do is give yourself a proper dog. <laughs> Any dog less than 50 pounds is a cat. And cats, cats are pointless. Yeah, that's the exact same episode. Oh, it's so good. Okay, anyway, our other announcement, now that we are like 12 minutes in, is that on election night, you may have seen our video this week um, and seen some invitations. The election night show, produced by Let's Fix This, will be at the Tower Theater on November 6th. Uh, live music, free food, a bunch of guests. It's like The Tonight Show, but all Oklahomans, and it will... Uh, blow your mind like you 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 need to be there um it is going to be a ton of fun there we have some great music um some great people some great guests and i'm i'm not gonna you know you don't want to like give away the farm but i will tell you this you will not have election coverage like this anywhere else in oklahoma that's exactly like there is no there yeah there is no other news organization there is no other podcast there's no radio show no one will be giving you the kind of election night, what's happening, where, and what does it all mean? Like, you're going to get yeah. with us. We will have great insight. You will get good insight other places. KOSU, KGOU are doing a great show, but it's not us. Hey, way to plug the competition. They won't have live music like we will. They won't Jose have live- Hernandez will be our house band. Casey Clifford. JB's in the JB, house. JB, Joel T. Mossman, Stephen Salawan. Going to have great music. A bunch of great guests. Um, check it out online. Let's fix this. And okay, it's, and it's free. You're not it's even free. Getting, you're not even getting charged for this. That's right. And you will have free food. If Just, you'd like to donate, you can feel free to do that. That's but. true. There are sponsorships. So if you go to letsfixthisok.org/slash/election-night, all the details are there. Information about uh, where to go. Uh, if you want to sponsor, there's that. And if you are a candidate or you know a candidate who doesn't yet have an election party watch party planned, great. Come to ours. We I got confirmation today from at least one other candidate who will be there. Um, and we want candidates to come and host their watch parties with us. Um, we are asking you to pay a small amount of money to help offset the cost that we have to pay to yeah, do this. Right? Um, but it is in, in exchange for that small cost. The cost is only $200. Um, you can have some space there, a table, some signage, and we'll take care of everything else, which uh, there's no dollar sign for peace of mind, is what I heard from the Zach Brown band. And like, why would you like throw your own party when you can come to a big ass party with lots of That's people? That's right. If you win, we'll cheer. If you lose, we won't say anything. Just go about your business. Have another drink. Uh, we're going to have Let's Fix This Koozies. Thanks to uh, Coop Aleworks for co-sponsoring those with us and uh, all kinds of stuff. So come out November 6th at 6 p.m. at the Tower Theater. Should be lots of fun. Full disclosure, I have a koozie already and they're awesome. You want one? That's right. I gave you one last week, didn't I? Yeah, yeah Very exciting. All right. Um, that brings us to our news roundup. I love this music. This is one of my it's, favorite it's, ones. It's pretty fantastic. All right. So this week, let's, let's uh, get an update on some medical marijuana, which we've not discussed in a few weeks. We also have not used this reggae music I found, which I feel is appropriate <laughs> or or very inappropriate. Uh, so on the subject of medical marijuana, I did see today that there are four states will be voting on it next month. Michigan, Missouri, North Dakota, and Utah voting on various degrees of medical and or recreational marijuana. Uh, of, of note is Utah, where the legislature... The uh, the Church of Latter Day Saints, the Mormon Church, um, and the governor kind of got together, and and maybe the Attorney General, and were like, okay, we agree, let's go recreational. And I thought it was bananas that the the Mormon Church was on board with 
full recreational marijuana. Aren't are Mormons allowed to drink? No, not even caffeine. That's why I was like. But they're in favor of the uh, recreational cannabis. Well, and I, if you read about it, it's super interesting. I think it's a state-sponsored industry. They're not charging any tax on it, which is bananas to me. So if you go to the Tulsa World, they have a um, both the Tulsa World and News OK have subsections just for medical marijuana. But the Tulsa World has on the right hand, if you look on a desktop, there's like marijuana in Oklahoma and a bunch of great links like join the Facebook public group marijuana in Oklahoma. Still illegal. 10 things medical marijuana patients would not be allowed to do under state question 788. Huh. Rules no in place for this. Marijuana 101, a Q&A for those who've never inhaled. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Was that Clinton or Bush that said he's never inhaled? Uh, that was, was Clinton, right? Bush. No, Bush? Yeah, 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 Clinton. Clinton, you're right. Uh, Bush I was just like, inhale. yeah, I definitely did. It depends on what I the defini- definition of is is. Right. So anyway. It was that guy. Check that out. Um, speaking of Tulsa World. They have an article this week uh, called, this is a long title, Medical Marijuana by the Numbers. Current patient to dispensary ratio is 12 to 1 as health department Jesus, gets that seems like five, a lot. <laughs> 5 million in licensing fees. So already we've made 5 million bucks. Well, not made. We've revenue. That's not profit. Um, so here's the numbers. Business question. Is there any dispensary that can stay open with only 12 patients? No. So that's the problem is that the... Um, <laughs> they're they've given out a whole bunch of uh, licenses for dispensaries, but not that many licenses for consumers yet. Maybe folks just haven't applied. So um, there's been five thousand and eleven patient registration fees. So that's uh, five hundred one thousand um, dollars. And let's see, another twenty three hundred Medicaid patient registrations, temporary grower, um, nine hundred and eighteen applicants for growers, so that's about $2.3 million. 243 processor registration fees. 800 applicants for dispensaries. Um, and that's So this... And how many applications for patients, you said? About 5,000. So, so like 800 dispensaries and only like 5,000 patients. And so that's a lot, right? And that's, this is the other... Yeah. All these CBD shops are like not all a lot of them are planning to like open up and be so everyone wants right. to sell it cause, I mean everyone thinks my neighbors right. are doing this too. everyone's like ooh this is gonna be big business but there hasn't been as many patients that have enrolled yet right so in other I can tell you that in other places that this has been passed um, the economics are the economics of opening you know, of, of having a grow operation or dispensary are I mean they're impressive I mean like in the tens of millions of dollars for pretty minimal startup costs like like startup costs that are in the tens of thousands of dollars to within five years have profits in the tens of millions of dollars but that assumes right that you can beat out the competition which is apparently going to be quite fierce right like i don't know what yeah, these the, are gonna close you know i don't know what the I, I have no idea what the ratio is like how many you know in oregon or uh, california colorado washington state like i don't know what the ratio of patient to dispensary is mm-hmm. for break even and what the ratio is to, to, to you know to be profitable. Um, but I would guess that it is in the hundreds of patients per dispensary, not in the dozens of patients per dispensary. Unless those dozen people spend a lot of money, you know, and it, and it might even be in the 
in the thousands of patients per dispensary, which if it's if it's even a thousand patients per dispensary to be profitable, then that means that we have room in Oklahoma for right now like five dispensaries. Right, right. So I I I need to update. I was too far away from my monitor and I did not I misread those numbers. There have been seventy three hundred patient applications and six hundred dispensaries. I, I thought the six was eight. So okay, so fine. So it's so, better, but so, still but, not. So we have room for seven dispensaries. Yes, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> As opposed to six hundred. So I think it'll be kind of like it was with tattoo shops, where there was uh, a ton of tattoo shops, like right away, like every one that every tattoo artist that could pay a month's worth of rent opened up a shop, and then a bunch of them closed, and then you kind of got a few yeah. that really had some staying power, yeah. and then artists that were kind of started coming together and being like, you know, we should all just have one shop instead of like six shops for yeah. six of us. I mean, when I think of tattoo, like when I think of tattoo shops, I mean, I, there's like three I think of in kind of the urban core mm-hmm. that I feel like are kind of the go-to that's it? places. Well, that's probably true. I mean, I, I feel like I've been tattooed at one, two, three, four, five different shops here. Ooh, look at me. I'm Andy. I'm a badass. <laughs> I've been tattooed all over the city. It's... It's only two people, though. Nah, my, three people. But. My my ink is ridiculous. I don't know about that. But I, um, <laughs> you know, I don't, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, you know, there's been some criticism. So the the joint uh, marijuana, the joint marijuana working group from yeah. the legislature um, meets every Wednesday. They met today. I don't, I didn't get to check Twitter today. I had a kind of a crazy day. And so I don't know what the outcome of that meeting was. But there's been a lot of talk. You know, people have been complaining, saying we have too many dispensaries, we don't have enough patients, like that there needs to be some regulation here. I don't know, man. I'm kind of like, let the market work, right? Like, let as many people who want to get licenses get licenses, mm-hmm. let it go, and then we'll uh, we'll see who comes out on top. Am I am I wrong there? Like, is that? Um, no, that's that's, uh, that's, that's capitalism that's, uh, at its finest, right? That's right? how the market works. Speaking of that, uh, Canada is also going to be voting on legalizing weed, so... There's that. So I did see a little bit of Twitter today because um, it was a working group met today. It's Wednesday. It was their 12th meeting and they're going to hold off for a few weeks on meeting again. But they did agree on some rules and they haven't, I haven't seen the story pop up on either of the big websites, but it was really interesting because um, they were talking about these numbers and and it was more about the banking side of things where, you know, it's a, ca- it's a cash business because it's a federal crime. It's still, still a federal crime. And oh, here is good. Tulsa World has it updated. Um, it is so like lots of possibilities, but basically the health department has said they will step up to receive the tax revenue because if if every dispensary, so there's 600 dispensaries, if they all have to pay taxes every once a month, right? Like their their sales tax on this, it has right. to be paid in cash. So like customers have to pay cash. They have to. Hold a bunch Hold of cash, the cash in their store, and then they've got to take it somewhere. But if no banks, if so, like if they can't find a bank to work with, they just got to like bury it in the backyard or something. And then, but they still got to pay taxes on it. But the tax commission will take it in cash. The tax commission will, but they don't have the capacity to take all those people. So the health department's like, well, we can help out. And uh, and so Roger Beverage is his name. Who he's the leader of the Oklahoma Bankers Association. He's like, I keep trying to think of a way that to get around like a, this. I'll be damned if I can. That sounds like a fake name. Yeah, and they were. He was saying, Roger Beverage here. Yeah, 
There's no, uh, you know, there's nothing we can do that trumps federal law. That's the problem. And so they were talking about the very real reality. That this is a big deal, except there are a bunch of other, there are 30 something other states that already yeah. do this. What are they, what are they doing? Do they, what, are, what are other states doing? I don't know. Actually, I think, I think everyone just gets scared up front. Everyone's like, well, what if the feds really put focus on us? And maybe this is because we're the first state to really do this one of the first states since the Trump administration has been in place. Right. And with one of the first states with uh, Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Yeah. And so that was the deal was they asked him and he was kind of, and Sessions was kind of like, well, I think we should prosecute to the full degree of the law. And so they're all, my name is Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. The third, <laughs> is that his full name? Yes. His name, his name is Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. The third. Okay. Uh, I don't even have some music for that. <laughs> he sounds like, uh, I don't know the theme from gone with the wind. Yeah. Uh, um, like he sounds like he should be a plantation owner. Well, and so the deal was that under Obama, Obama was basically like, don't worry about it. Like, just don't prosecute those things. And Sessions rescinded that. I got your back, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke them if you get them. So, all right. Well, that's it on miracle ma- medical marijuana. I will did say you just that. Did say miracle marijuana? I did. But I was mumbling. Um, also, on News OK, there's an article called Dispensary Snap Up OKC Property Despite Rules Confusion, and it features this guy that owns a dispensary called The Rabbit Hole, which is right near my house, just down the street, between you and I. And it's, I mean, I pass it every day and laugh. The Rabbit Hole. And the guy is not at all what I expected. He looks a little bit like me, I'll be honest. <laughs> I said it to my wife, and I was like, I did not expect this guy to be opening it. In he Chino's uh, button down on a sweater vest? He uh, No, my sweater vest. <laughs> I was on a billboard for this one time. I said, my sweater vest is not helping my street cred, and it's true. Okay, um, one other quick news story, and then we'll move on. Um, this news story is just called Symbolism. This is a great one. Did you look at this already? Yes. It is from October 14th, 1996. And I looked this up today because uh, this morning at Elemental, we did some voter registration. We got three folks coming to uh, update their registrations, which is cool. I had my sample ballot with me. Not my sample ballot, my absentee ballot. And I was, it's longer than I expected. I don't, I pulled it out. I was like, well, this is intimidating. A lot of judicial elections. Well, and just all the statewide races and all the five state questions. And you forget that it's a lot to think about. And I think that's intimidating, which is why we're going to do the ballot events. Um, anyway, at the top, there's the box that says straight party voting. And where you can check one box and it you pick all those candidates, which is lame. Don't do it. Yeah. As an aside, don't ever check that box. I wish it would just go away. Just yeah. shouldn't be an option. No, because it's like I, it, they're all true. That's fine. Just pick that. No, I even if you are a super partisan, that's fine. Just go through and fill in all of them. Just As, just do that. So you, Andrew, are a registered ind- independent. Yeah. I think everyone who listens to the show knows I'm a registered Democrat. Um, uh, people, you know, depending depending on how you like describe, like depending on what your definition of like moderate, uh, moderate or liberal or progressive is or whatever, I would say I'm probably a fairly progressive um for oklahoma yeah certainly for oklahoma i'm so i'm a democrat relatively progressive for oklahoma i can tell you right now i have not voted i will not be voting only democratic oh my god yeah certainly there is at least at least one maybe more races in which i'll be voting for a republican or an independent no and i uh and there's some libertarians i need to read a lot more on some of these folks what are your thoughts on libertarians 
it depends. I've, I've, in my opinion, I think it depends a lot on the individual. I find their platform is less cohesive. Although at this day and age, it feels like the platforms for all the parties are in flux, right? What is a Republican? What is a Democrat these days? No, no one's quite sure. You know, I, which is why you should vote for the person and not for the party. I, and don't hate tweet me or I guess do hate tweet me if you want. Um, Scott just wants your tweets. No, I don't. <laughs> At least not if, not if you want me to argue with you. I'm not. Not, not this week. Yeah. Um, I, I really struggle with like kind of libertarianism as an, uh, as an ideology. Like I feel like libertarianism, if you really kind of take it to its logical conclusion, like it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. Right. Democrats and Republicans have very different ideas about how society should operate, what our laws should look like, what markets should look like, how we should function in society. But I think that there is a common strand. There is a common strand there that Democrats and Republicans, for all their differences, at least agree that we should we are in some respects all better off together. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in everything, right? And maybe what being together looks like is different depending on the party, but we're all better off together. The libertarians, the I do what I want, you do what you want, stay off my lawn, don't bother me, keep mm-hmm. government out of my business. Like that like that breaks down for me on several well, levels. I think it's a good idea. It's just very limited. Well, it's one of those things that like, Okay, like we're not all in this together. It's everybody for their own. Well, you use the electricity that I help pay for, right? And you use the water that I help pay for, and you drive on the roads that I help pay for, mm-hmm. and you help pay for them too. But you complain about it all the time, right? right? Like, like you use the fire department that I help pay for. You use the EMS that I help pay for. Like, and it also even getting like beyond policy at a very fundamental level, human beings as we are today from an evolutionary perspective, we survived because of community, right? We survived because we figured out that when we lived in families and when those families lived together in groups of families and some people hunted and some people gathered and some people cooked and some people skinned the animals and some people cared for the kiddos. When everybody, when there were groups of us living together and everyone pitched in and everyone played to their strengths, we were able to withstand the 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 pressures of the world and thrive as a society. And I think that Republicans and Democrats have legitimate disagreements about how best for that society to move forward. But libertarians, the idea that we're just, that there's no role for all of us to be together, it's each for their own, and society is best when I do what I want and you do what you want and nobody interferes with anybody else, that doesn't even hold up from the most like that doesn't like that doesn't hold up from like a sociological anthropological perspective. Like if that was what our like if that's what our nature was, we would not be here as a species in the same way that we are today. Okay. Like libertarianism goes fundamentally against what makes us human. Interesting. I will have to think on that for a while. Maybe I'll respond next week. That's fine. So back to the symbolism article. <laughs> before we got off on political theory. Uh, So this article from 1996, and I thought about it because today I'd look at my my absentee ballot at the top, the straight party voting box, 
there were three icons there next to the three parties, Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian. The Libertarian had a porcupine. The Republicans had an eagle. Which is, of course, fitting. And the Democrats had a rooster. And I thought, what the hell is this? Where's the Where's the elephant and the donkey? Uh, fortunately, uh, someone, I think Dale Dinwalt, had shared this. Um, this is actually a Tulsa World article from, from 1996. And it dates back to, honestly, to the territorial legislature in 1890 that passed a law that that parties should designate a brief name or title for the party together with a simple figure or device by which they may be designated on the ballot. Basically, uh, a good number of folks were unable to read. They were illiterate in 1890, and so they needed a picture so that people would know. They couldn't read Democrat, Republican, whatever, they just needed a picture like I voted for the duck or whatever, the rooster or the eagle. And so that was in 1890 before we were a state. And then in there was a few changes. They said no party could have an American flag or any other emblem common to people at large, which is funny because the American flag would have changed anyway because we weren't even a state yet. Um, but you could have like a star, an eagle, a plow or some other appropriate symbol. And so in the first legislature of the state, once we were a state in 1907, um, they, um, right, 1907? Yes, sir. All right. Um, you were looking at me like I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just, I projected that on you. And so at that time, the law that was passed states, until changed by resolution of a political party, in, I don't know where that accent's coming from, in state convention. <laughs> it's not or, Oklahoma, or, that's or, or through state central committee, the emblem of the Democratic Party shall be the picture of a rooster, that of the Republican Party, the picture of an eagle, and that of the Socialistic Party, the picture of an open hand. Well, <laughs> which is hilarious. because because socialists were a big part of the state back then, uh, and then, but that got uh, they got kicked off the ballot um, in 1974. Well, that changed because. The socialists hadn't had a presidential candidate since 1936. Are socialists a thing in Oklahoma? Not anymore. Hey, if you're a member of the Socialist Party of Oklahoma or any other organization... Well, there's the Democratic Socialists. Yeah, well, you people can hit me out on Twitter because I would like to know you exist. There, that's a whole thing. Um, so th- you cannot have the same image as another party. Makes and, sense. Yeah, and so that wasn't a big deal, but Ross Perot's Reform Party did uh, try to also be an eagle. And so they Republicans already had that. So the Reform Party had to submit a second selection, which was a star, a five-pointed star. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't... So what's funny to me is that they've just never changed it. So the Republicans have always been an eagle, which I get them keeping that. The Republicans have always been a rooster. Or the Democrats have always been a rooster, which I which guess is better than a donkey. It's, I find puzzling why... Interesting. I'm, I'm curious why they selected those at yeah. the beginning. There so, is, at the end of the article, is a bit about why it's, it's a elephant and a donkey now, so you can check that out well, if you're interested. So we'll, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pick it up there. Are you familiar with uh, Thomas Nast? Yes. Interesting. Who, for our listeners, Andrew, who is Thomas Nast? Oh, well, I'm not that familiar. Hang on. Let me scroll <laughs> down. I saw his name in this article. Was he uh, like a cartoonist? So Thomas Nast is considered the father of the modern political cartoon. And the image of the GOP as an elephant, the Republicans, the grand old party, 
uh, is traced. There's two possible, two kind of etiologies. So first is uh, after the Civil War, right? Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, um, and the image of the elephant was a Republican symbol because it was uh, there was an expression "seeing the elephant" that was used by soldiers to to mean experiencing combat, uh, and so interesting. And so that's part of how the elephant came to represent the the GOP, but. As a modern symbol of the Republican Party, Thomas Nast used it in a political cartoon in Harper's, Harper's Weekly in 1874. He was mocking the New York Herald, and the New York Herald had been uh, critical of President Grant, President Ulysses S. Grant, and he showed, there was a, a cartoon showing an elephant labeled the Republican vote, and it was shown standing on the edge of a pit. Uh, so that was a cartoon drawn by... The Pit of Despair. Nice. <laughs> that was a political cartoon drawn by Thomas Nast, and uh, he used the elephant to represent Republicans in other cartoons from the 1870s, and by 1880s it had kind of captured uh, captured the nation's uh, uh, fervor, and it's been the, Rep- the uh, symbol of the Rep- Republican Party ever since. The uh, origin of the donkey as the symbol of the Democrats is less illustrious. I am sorry to say. Uh, so it's exactly what you think it is. Uh, it's it's freaking terrible. So, this guy is a jackass, right? So uh, Andrew Jackson, president. I'm gonna. He was at, Jackson was like the what, like eighth, ninth president, something ish, right? Um, so Andrew Jackson was running for president. He was labeled a jackass by his opponents, which. Uh, with the benefit of history, hindsight um, <laughs> is probably one hundred percent true. Uh, and Jackson, um, Jackson, much like uh, some modern political figures, said, "Jackass, I'm not a jackass. You're the jackass." Uh, he embraced it, um, and the uh, jackass became a symbol of his campaign. He won, much to the chagrin of his opponents and the nation. And the jackass has been a symbol of the Democratic Party ever since, which for the Democrats is, let's be honest, not great. Yeah. That's my sole contribution to the news roundup this week. I like it. <laughs> it's Thomas Nast and Andrew Jackson. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will do our interview with Mark Miles. <laughs> Okay, we're back with Democratic candidate for Attorney General, Mark Miles. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So uh, tell us, let's start with I mean, a little bit about your history, who you are, and why you decided to run for this office. Well, it's kind of a long story, but... Uh, can you make it in like five minutes? Yeah, I can, I can do five minutes. <laughs> so if, if we go back... Four years, and the story starts more than four years ago. So let's go back eight years. Um, eight years ago, I actually ran for office for the first time. I ran for U.S. Senate, and uh, I talked to somebody today who said, "Hey, I voted for you eight years ago, and I don't know how you lost, but I did lose in the primary for. Uh, I, but I ran for U.S. Senate. Okay, would have Who, Who'd you run against? Well, I was beaten in the primary by a guy named Jim Rogers, who was a perennial candidate. Right. Uh, you know, he stood on a street corner in Midwest City and held a sign over his shoulders and didn't raise money, but uh, somebody was paying for his statewide robocalls, and uh, so he he basically uh, uh, created a lot of political mischief. Uh, among the Democrats for for years and years with his his entry into politics, but uh, 
Uh, four years later, uh, I was uh, a prosecutor in Logan County. And I'd committed to my boss, Tom Lee, who was the district attorney for Logan and Payne County, that I was not going to run for political office as kind of a precondition to, to being employed in 2013. And uh, lo and behold, 2014 came around and the filing period came and passed and nobody on the Democratic side ran for attorney general. And uh, I, in probably along with a number of other Democrats, was dismayed by that. It was kind of sad. We got Scott Pruitt reelected with zero votes, and I thought, you know, if the opportunity ever arises again, I want to make sure that opportunity doesn't pass because I'm a firm believer in democracy, and I think that uh, people, the people of Oklahoma, deserve a choice when uh, they're voting for uh, candidates, especially the statewide candidates. Sure. So 2018 came, and and uh, I made a number of inquiries to a number of people around the state, and uh, people had expressed an interest in running, and at the end of the day, none of them opted to do that, and I said, yeah, I'm qualified to do this job. I've uh, been a prosecutor. I've been a defense attorney. I've tried jury trials on both sides, and I'm going to enter the fray for attorney general, and I'm glad I did. Um, Had I not, um, this race would have already been decided. Uh, My opponent would have won because he won the runoff, but it would have been decided in a Republican primary, essentially. And again, that's not the way our state's supposed to work. So that's kind of a long story short. I believe in justice, and the job of attorney general is one in which you're supposed to protect the people of the state of Oklahoma against, you know, whomever it is that that threatens them. You know, whether it's criminals or environmental pirates, for lack of a better word, or 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 people who are scammers or internet predators. You know, the list goes on and on and on. But it's also a job where you're supposed to advocate for transparency and open government, which is essentially my platform, and hold special interest accountable, making sure that you put the public interest above the special interest. I didn't feel like those things were happening. Uh, looking at the, the reign of Scott Pruitt, for one, uh, who clearly was, for lack of a better word, in the pocket of a lot of the special interest out there. And I didn't feel like uh, the guy who took his place when he was appointed by Mary Fallon was... Uh, uh, holding up his end of the job either. I sure. think he's certainly got a little more polish than, than Scott did. But um, I just think that we as a state can do better. And the last piece of it is the AG is, uh, there's a social justice component to being the Attorney General. So there's some controversial things going around, like uh, you know when a policeman shoots somebody, um, do they have to? And, you know, I'm a big fan of law enforcement because that's what makes our society go. But, you know, there's instances where, you know, deadly force is not necessarily the uh, path of, well, the first resort, you know, instead of the last resort. It should be a last resort. And and from a social justice perspective, from a, a population of people in a state who are um, minorities, who have been... Uh, maybe disproportionately targeted uh, by the criminal justice system. I think there there's some issues that we need to look at that are great big broad issues that uh, I think is a proper function and role of the AG. And uh, I recognize the uh, historical aspects of this. You know, nobody who has been a person of color has run for this position before, and I would be the first to successfully do it uh, should I win. And uh, I think there's some constituencies out there that are interested in, in somebody who looks like me uh, running for this job and, and trying to institute some change across the state. For sure. So that, so that we can do a better job. Yeah. 
so uh well that's excellent um kind of summary and i appreciate you gave us your bio kind of in that that was a good story and it was less than five minutes okay. good job well, i like i can go back in time <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, uh maybe so this is your second statewide campaign it's well my, it's my second statewide that's um, correct and that's a lot of time on the road um, what have you, I assume you've spent some time in, in both urban and rural areas mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. I have. Tell us a little bit about what is similar and what is different about the constituency in those areas. Well, everybody across the state is concerned about issues that impact them. So from an environmental perspective, I don't know that people in Tulsa or Oklahoma City necessarily think about environmental issues every day uh, because there's generally bigger infrastructure around them to kind of uh, shield them uh, from from issues like that other than global warming, which, you know, I'm not going to fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly out in the country, uh, when you go into rural, rural Oklahoma, people are concerned about water, and that's kind of a universal concern. Um, you know, protect water. In eastern Oklahoma, there's more surface water, more lakes, more rivers, more streams, but there there's also groundwater. People do pull water out of the ground in order to to uh, to survive in eastern Oklahoma. If you go out to western Oklahoma, there's certainly less surface water, hmm. but there's uh, more groundwater. And they're also concerned about threats to their environment from uh, the perspective of who's using our water, what are they using it for, and, and you know, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, how does it impact me? So they don't like their water wells going dry, um, which happens when you've got industrial uh, people in pursuit of using groundwater to, to support their operations. In yeah. western Oklahoma, it's mining in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, the the poultry industry with the chicken farms is is a big deal and uh, and there's other people who are doing the same thing earthquakes universally you know mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. had my house shaken uh, you know to the core here in Oklahoma City uh, all through north northern Oklahoma north central Oklahoma any place where it seems injection wells have been created it seems like uh, that's kind of triggered um, some faults and, and and made people much more aware of earthquakes and uh, so that's something that's kind of universally um, uh, people have expressed a universal concern about. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, those are probably the, the biggest issues as I've traveled around the state. Now, in western Oklahoma, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we were out in a, a little place called Fay, Oklahoma, uh, two or three weeks ago now. And we were out there because of some water issues and some mining issues kind of conflated into one. But I talked to some people afterwards who said, you know, I complained to the attorney general's office because I made a mistake. I paid some money to a, a contractor, and he was supposed to do a job for me, and he ended up not doing it. Took my money and and, and fled. And and uh, I'm not happy with the AG because of that. Because we complained, they said they would do something, but at the end of the day, all they did was take our name and number, and and that was the last they heard from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things happen across the state. It's happened to me, unfortunately, and. Uh, uh, so that's something that, that people are concerned about, too. Sure. Now, from top to bottom, this is a red state, you know, historically. Um, the issues that people in red states are concerned about are the opioid crisis, which is a thing. You know, it's a, it's a real problem uh, from top to bottom. Now, there's different ways of looking at it. The, uh, our state has chosen to pursue a lawsuit against the manufacturers of the opioids, and uh, not unlike some of the other states. But the problem goes much deeper than that in that it's not just the, the legal supply chain that is a problem. And I would argue that the legal supply chain of opioids isn't the biggest problem out there, but, uh, but uh, they have contributed to the situation. 
from a statewide perspective, I've made the statement to a number of people that we really need to treat the drug addiction problem as a public health problem instead of a public safety problem, which right. means that you can't criminalize every aspect of it. You've got to actually treat the people who use opioids, who most likely started using them because they probably had a prescription to them, and, and, and figure out how to treat them because we've got the drugs out there to allow uh, somebody to work their way off of an addiction if an addiction is, is what ultimately results from, from their use of them. And then, of course, you've got to go after the people that, that are the illegal purveyors of, of drugs out there, and you've got to keep the pressure up on them. So Yeah. Um, so on the note about opioids, mm-hmm. uh, certainly, I mean, that has been a hot topic, I feel like, almost every day in the news yeah. and, and certainly uh, during this, this election cycle. Uh, and as we are beginning to discuss some kind of lawsuit mm-hmm. against uh, the pharmaceutical industry for their practices surrounding this, it brings to mind the lawsuit against the tobacco companies mm-hmm. that was, I believe that was led under Drew Edmondson, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yep. Um, that's ironic. Um, do you do you think, Mark, that we are looking, that we're staring down the barrel, for lack of a better phrase, of, of another lawsuit similar to the tobacco settlement? Oh, um, I... Yes. The short answer is yes. I think uh, at the end of the day, we're trying to replicate the success of what happened with the tobacco industry. And if we are successful, because we have filed a lawsuit, we being the state of Oklahoma, filed a lawsuit against a bunch of manufacturers of opioids that um, they could be looking at a very, very large monetary settlement. And uh, the goal would be to uh, generate basically a revenue stream that can help the state of Oklahoma manage some of the issues that the, mm-hmm. that the state faces over a period of time. One of the things that Attorney General Hunter has kind of come under fire for, um, certainly in his primary, was that the decision to, uh, for lack of a better term, outsource the the litigation in the, in the opioid lawsuit to outside counsel rather than uh, conducting that case or trying that case within the office of the AG itself. Do you have an, do you have an opinion on that? Was that... Good decision, bad decision. Do you feel like that's the? Do you feel like the AG is within their kind of role to make decisions like that? Um, what do you? What are your thoughts? Well, I will concede that the AG has the authority to do that, and I will tell you that uh, Mike's not the first person or first right. AG to do that. Um, that practice actually started um, when Drew Edmondson was the Attorney General. So you have to assume that the firm that you hire, if you're going to go through that process, is uh, qualified to handle it, has a background mm-hmm. to handle it, and the uh, experience and the resources to do that. Uh, the uh, primary for the AG between uh, Gintner Drummond and my opponent was, was particularly heated. That was an issue that uh, Mr. Drummond raised. And... Th- he had some questions about why that particular law firm was chosen. Sure. I don't know what the answer, you know, at the end sure. of the day actually was. I know they have um, uh, Burridge and, and Witten have some personal stakes in this particular lawsuit. Um, were they the best ones? Don't know. Um, but they're sure. the ones who've got it now. And, you know, that ship is sailed from, sure. from, from our perspective. Sure. Uh, I want to come back to uh, the topic of government transparency. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you know, but in addition to my role with Let's Fix This, I'm also the executive director of Freedom of Information Oklahoma, which advocates and promotes open, transparent government, uh, particularly at the state and local mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I've I've visited with uh, with Mr. Edmondson about his plans as governor and, and 
um, I haven't had a chance to talk to uh, Mike Hunter about. He's been somewhat uh, involved in and and kind of helping promote that and has helped do some trainings, I think, for law enforcement agencies and that kind of thing. Uh, but so tell us a little bit about a little expand on your view of the role of transparency in government and how, if elected, you would you would help promote that. Well, the role of transparency in government is is particularly important in a democracy because the government's run by people. The people have a right to the information about how the government is actually functioning. So in the absence of transparency, you generally get things like corruption. And if you don't know what's going on, then that allows people to do things. I have talked at length over the course of the campaign about transparency, starting with uh, Tar Creek as an example. Sure. Uh, People know something about Tar Creek, and basically it was a Superfund site and remains remains as a Superfund site in northeastern Oklahoma. Tar Creek was uh, an EPA Superfund site in which uh, a number of, well, a number of projects arose as a consequence of that, one of which was the little town of Pitcher, Oklahoma. Pitcher was a town sitting right on Tar Creek where a lot of mining operations took place and they had to dispose of the uh, lead tailings, essentially, from the mines. And as a consequence of that, uh, the lead leached into all of the waters and the streams in that area. And then as a consequence of the wind blowing, uh, lead particles ended up uh, uh, contaminating all of the structures up there. And a determination was made by the EPA that they needed to buy the whole town and tear it down. Hmm. And that was a contract that was let in the state of Oklahoma. The original contract was $560,000, if I, if, the, if I remember correctly. But the state ended up paying about $3.6 million out on that contract. Uh, for a variety of reasons, um, most of which were hidden from the public for a number of years. Mm. The AG at the time was Scott Pruitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Pruitt declined to release the audit that was done by Gary Jones, who's the state auditor and inspector. Mm-hmm. Uh, very comprehensive uh, audit and uh, investigation that took about two years, done by another attorney within his office. And the consequence of that was they, they, they got the results. Pruitt said, don't release it, told Gary Jones, don't release it. Uh, Gary didn't release it. I think he was subject to a lawsuit, as was the AG, uh, over that issue. And then when the when Mr. Pruitt left and went to Washington, uh, Mike uh, took office in February 2017, and he refused to release it for another year and a half. Uh, I think he finally released it about the time that uh, he filed for office to run for AG for the first time. Mm-hmm. Funny and how that works. Is, yeah, funny how that works. But that was I think a court said, you got to release it. So I think under pressure, he released it. So uh, when I looked at it, it was pretty clear to me that there was something suspicious afoot that certainly should have merited a deeper investigation into to what happened mm-hmm. up there and why so much more money was spent than, than should have been. So that was the start of it. Now, there's a guy who actually ran for governor of the state on the Republican side, a guy by the name of Chris Barnett, who has filed a number of open records requests, and the AG has blocked them at every step of the way. Mm-hmm. So while uh, the AG has made the decision that, yeah, we'll be transparent and open in some areas, it appears that he's hiding some things in some others or kind of helping that process be hidden. Um, Chris Barnett has uh, requested uh, a number of emails from a university in, in, uh, in the Tulsa area uh, because he thinks there's evidence of, of basically... Uh, bad behavior mm-hmm. that uh, he wants to make public, and the state has fought him every step of the way, even going so far as to remove that case to federal court, arguing that uh, uh, that uh, when 
an injunction was filed by Mr. Barnett that it changed the nature of the claim uh, to something that created a federal question. Uh, and then when it got to federal court, the federal judge looked at it and said no. Oh, well, the other side of it was they argued that it raised a federal question, but then when it got to federal court, they argued that it needed to be dismissed because there was no federal question raised. So it was kind of a, uh, right. a game of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, a circular argument. I just finished watching, uh, re-watching Making a Murderer mm-hmm. last night. My wife had never seen it in, in anticipation of season two. We, I've heard it's pretty awesome. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, your wife just told me she's never seen it either. You guys should spend the weekend watching this. It's only 10 hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah just I, a little bit. So, also, so, also, the, so, so the net of that story was federal judge kicked it back out. To, mm. to back to state court and said, nope, you guys need to, to deal right. with it. But they're still hiding that information. That's a problem. So my approach to transparency in open government is the AG's office is responsible for making sure all of the agencies understand what the Open Records Act is, what the Open Meetings Act is, and what needs to be turned over when people turn things over or when people ask for those things to be turned over. And to fight those things every step of the way cost the state of Oklahoma money. Yeah. And when you're costing the state of Oklahoma money, that means taxpayers are paying for that. That's right. And so it's costing taxpayers money to fight these things. So if there's a problem within the state, the job of the AG should be kind of a watchdog in that fix the problems so that you don't expose the state to additional risk, which right. saves the state money. So kind of a, uh, can I interrupt? Yes. Because we've mentioned his name so many times, I feel that it's, Obligatory yes. that we play our Pruitt watch we music. <laughs> Mark, yes. you don't know this, but um, historically, if we have a, a news story about Scott Pruitt, then which we, we did every week for like four months, for a while, it was a little dicey there. But we haven't mentioned him in a few weeks, and I miss the music. Okay, it is this good is, music. Anyway, okay, well, I'll stop that. But so he's back, <laughs> right? So this is going to expose my uh, ignorance of like how kind of the hierarchies and more nuanced aspects of of the legal system in Oklahoma work. So as the AG, you're elected independently. District attorneys across the state are elected independently as well, right? The district attorneys don't report to the attorney general in any way. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. I'm not a reporter, but I follow a lot of reporters on Twitter. And one of the things that I feel like I see repeatedly is that there is a a persistent and longstanding problem with local agencies, but especially district attorney's offices, mm-hmm. not applying with freedom of, inf- not complying with freedom of information requests. And so my question, if this makes sense is I know that the attorney general can issue legal opinions, right? Like clarifying certain aspects of the law. That's correct. Do, does the attorney general have to be like, asked a question by, for instance, the governor or the pro tem of the Senate or the Speaker of the House in order to issue a legal opinion? Or can the attorney general, like on your first day in office, issue a legal opinion that says, hey, this is how open records works. Hey, this is how freedom of information works. And this is how state and local officials should be conducting themselves to be in compliance with the law. Like, does that make does that make sense? It, it makes sense. I think the AG's office would probably handle that in a different way. Generally, the legal opinions are issued in response to a specific question by somebody who has standing to be able to ask a question. So, President Pro Tem, any state representative, as an mm-hmm. example, could ask a question. Uh, 
I'm not certain that a district attorney probably couldn't ask a legal question. Can a citizen um, ask a question? I don't know that a citizen could, but if they needed an answer, they probably could pick up the phone and call their congressman or, or their state representative or their state senator and get that question asked. So sure. if somebody had some stroke, they, I'm certain they could ask a question through their, their representative. I will say that we get, I get questions almost every week from citizens about uh, open records and open meeting act stuff. And we don't give legal opinions. I'll say that now mm-hmm. that yes. uh, freedom of information, Oklahoma does not do that. We can try to connect you with some attorneys who might mm-hmm. have an idea about it. Um, but it gets dicey giving out legal advice over the phone to strangers. Yeah, I hear uh, that. That, that I, can be tough. I will medical say medical advice yeah. is the same way. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, I will yeah. say that we like we have some some video, some curriculum and stuff on our website. If you're interested, it's foioklahoma.org. A lot of that though was created by then Attorney General Drew Edmondson at the time because he was a big advocate for open government then. Mm-hmm. And um, again, we don't endorse candidates, but. I'll just say he was very helpful with that issue Yeah, as pledged yeah. to be again. So, And, and I talked to Drew um, when I got into this thing and, and uh, I asked him specifically, specifically, you know, how do you handle the open records things? And he said what he did as the AG was he made sure that he had people who did training for all of the agencies across the board and right. it would take some yeah. time to roll that out. And I thought, you know, that makes sense. And, and I certainly think I would probably replicate the same thing well, and to make sure that all the agencies had the, the, the training and the information they needed to do that with the additional information to make them understand that there's a risk to not following the law with right. regards to open records and open meetings because again it costs the taxpayers money and i'm about i mean my background's in economics i didn't go back way back in time right but uh you know i understand you know when things cost you money you want to do the right thing because otherwise it's going to cost you money that you can't spend someplace else like right. education or announce the prevention is better than a pound of cure or- absolutely uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and that's the the situation is that the the individuals, the the employees who received that training years ago under A.G. Edmondson have all retired or moved on, mm-hmm. and they don't know that now. And I mean, with a legislature that at most is going to be like sixty percent with less than two years' experience, um, it's everyone is very fresh to this, and uh, myself included, and and so. It's time for a refresher course, I think, mm-hmm. for the whole state. Mm-hmm. And 75% with four years or less, right? Something like that. And that's counting if all the incumbents win Yeah, next month. Yeah. we can, man. Which remains to be seen. Right. Sure. I mean, at least one will not. I'm going to guess. I, mean, I don't know who. I'm just going to go on a limb. And yeah. Scott and I are in the process of you know, compiling our notes for our election night show. You know, it's funny that you say at least one will not. Um, I... I'm, I have data to review, but like, that's um, that's a complicated question. I think like it's it's astonishingly uncommon for incumbents. That's true. Not to win in the general election in Oklahoma, in like modern history. But I would say like, it's like, less like, likely that all of them are reelected. Um, that's probably true, but there are multiple. I know there has been at least one election, and I think there have been multiple elections where they all were like every incumbent that was running. Really? Yeah. Every now, that doesn't mean that like they were all incumbents, right? Because people retire, they move on to their offices, sure, whatever. Sure, sure. But like every there, I I believe that there have been at least one, if not more, elections where at the like state house and state senate level, every incumbent was, that was on the ballot in the general was retained. We should uh, get that stat for our election night thing. 
Well, gonna, yeah, and the interesting number two thousand one hundred and seventy-four on my to-do <laughs> yeah. list. Yeah. The interesting thing about this year, obviously, is that a number of incumbents were taken out at the primary level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, a lot of races now are not between an incumbent and, and a newcomer. A lot of races now are between a newcomer and a newcomer. Right. So we're, we're we'll see some change, and and obviously. This election year, there's a lot of anti-incumbency fever, and uh, and I'm optimistic that that will continue to work. And, that's right. You're hoping and, you're hoping that's the case. I'm hoping right? that's the case, and I can tell you from I mean I've been in more than 50 of the counties so far around the state. I can tell you a lot of people are fed up with Republicans for one. Yeah. I talked to another guy today on on the phone who uh, was a Republican who was an attorney, and he said, "I'm going to be the only Democrat he votes for." So uh, that's you know that's a vote for me on on the Republican side. Yeah. So uh, and and there's more people out there like that. So do you feel like that uh, anti-incumbent fever, if, at the state level, affects Democrats as well? Well, I would say no because there's so few. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in the and I know here in the urban areas, uh, you know, a number of the Democrat uh, representatives here in the Oklahoma City metro. We're unopposed this mm-hmm. year. Dunnington, mm-hmm. um, I think Mickey Dolan's Forest, some yeah. of those people were unopposed. Um, my under- If memory serves, I think in the rural areas, like southeast and eastern Oklahoma, they had some challengers out there, and it's a different ballgame out mm-hmm. there. Right? It is so. a different ballgame. But the the southeastern part of the state, I think, is, has more of the traditional uh, Democrat mm-hmm. in the state of Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, they're, they're proud of being yellow dogs out there, and... Uh, I think the Democrats will hold their own out in southeastern Oklahoma. Right. You know, I I I know that kind of moved to another another topic that I know is important to you as a former prosecutor and as you know running for the the state's top law enforcement position. You know, there's been a lot of work done on criminal justice reform, um, and there have been several measures that have that have passed that I think you know, in my opinion, are, are good things that are going to kind of start moving Oklahoma forward, but we have a lot of work to do so that we are not the, you know, the, the government entity that is incarcerating the most people per capita in the world. <laughs> right. Like more than, right. When you're incarcerating more people than like Iran or like it's, Saudi it's Arabia, like, it's like Brazil, Iran yeah. and Syria combined. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my and then, God. And then it's us, right? Like that's not happy, happy company. Um, and this is maybe almost more of a philosophical question. Answer it however you want to. I think one of the challenges with criminal justice reform is that as a, as a public policy matter is that it requires convincing people of facts that are very counterintuitive, right? Like the best example I have is, so I'm a pediatrician, my day job. And, you know, I talk with parents about how do you punish your kids? And they're like, well, spanking, right? It's like, okay, well, we shouldn't do that because there's really good evidence that like spanking doesn't work. And there's really good evidence that like negative reinforcement as a just general tool is not nearly as effective as positive reinforcement. Punishing bad behavior is not as effective as incentivizing good behavior, right? When you apply that to like the criminal justice system, right? It seems like, right, in your gut, I think for many people, it feels like if you punish people harder, like if the punishments are much more harsh, then people are less likely to commit a crime even though there's really good data that shows that's not true. So the question that I'm asking is, as attorney general, you're working on criminal justice reform. How do you get people on board with that? Like what, what's the message that you put out there to try and help people understand that even though harsh punishments may seem like the right thing to do, 
in practice, they they don't make sense for many crimes. Does that make sense? That's it makes question. sense. So let let's talk about Elgrit Burdix. Elgrit Burdix was a black guy. He passed a hot check in Anadarko, Oklahoma. And the backstory was a woman, I think, stole a check from a, an oil company up in the Oklahoma City area, went to Anadarko and said, hey, will you cash this check for me? If you do, I'll give you uh, $800, or I'll, I'll take $800 and you get the rest. The check was a $2,600 check. Uh, he passed it at a, a little convenience store called Step and Fetch in Anadarko, hmm. and uh, subsequently was arrested because he's the guy who passed the check. The woman was was never to be found. Was charged with passing a hot check. He had uh, four prior felony convictions, and uh, he fired his public defender. Got uh, conflict counsel, who was also a public defender. Uh, opted not to take the state's recommendation, which I don't remember what the state's rec was. Went to jury trial and received a life sentence so for twenty six hundred dollars for twenty six hundred dollars and and then you know when he gets out of prison he's supposed to repay the twenty six hundred dollars in restitution so after he's dead yeah right after so, his life sentence. so it, it, it's counterintuitive to me to incarcerate somebody at a rate of let's use the the ballpark number of twenty four thousand dollars a year for life uh, for writing a check that cost twenty six hundred dollars which he didn't write he just passed um, now that in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that case was overturned on appeal. Mm-hmm. They reduced it to 20 years. <laughs> so as a matter of public policy, the argument is from my perspective, we can spend $24,000 a year every year for all of the time that we send all of these people off to prison at $24,000 a year, or we can do something else. We can do diversion programs like a drug program or a DUI diversion program or a veterans court program or a mental health program, uh, all, all diversion programs that all work that cost no more than five to seven or eight thousand dollars a year. So as a matter of public policy, you're looking at saving, you know, fifteen, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars a year if you can do something different. So if that message is comes across, and at the end of the day, it's a legislature that has to make these changes because they're the ones who pass the laws. If you take the latitude away from the district attorneys who make sometimes ridiculous recommendations right. and, and, and say the worst that you can get for passing a hot check is five years, as an example, they're still going to recommend five years. But, but that ain't life. When, yeah. But life, 20. because right. life is available, you know, and the, and the prosecutor in that case, you know, his, his first words to the jury was, when is enough enough? You know, because he had four prior felony convictions. Um, it was very effective because the Caddo County jury mm-hmm. thought that he's, this guy's worthy of a life sentence. But uh, that illustrates some of the problems that we have. So the argument is we got to be smarter. You know, and as the as the AG, I've argued you got to be tough on crime. I have no problem with that, but you got to be smarter on crime. And on top of that, you got to know what a crime looks like. And I make that argument because I've been a prosecutor and I've been a defense attorney, and I know what crime looks like. And uh, and I've tried jury trials, and my opponent hasn't. So, you know, it's clear to me that sometimes he doesn't really know what a crime actually looks like. So, you know, one and this is the kind of a piggyback. It's related. It's not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call a follow-up, but I think another another issue that plagues the criminal justice system, and tell me if, tell me if I'm wrong, and it doesn't, um, but I've read several articles recently looking at you know municipal and state court systems around the country, not just Oklahoma's. It is astonishing to me 
the number of defendants who appear to plead guilty to things that they are not guilty of, but they do it because it appears that the the it's better to plead guilty and take five years rather than take your case to court and risk 20, you know, 30, 50 life, whatever it is. To me, that is a like, that seems like a horrible miscarriage of justice, <laughs> right? That like you, is that is that as much of a problem as I'm imagining that it is? And if it is, how do we reduce that? Like, how do we get to a point in the criminal justice system where people feel like, yeah, I didn't do this and I'm going to stick with my public defender or my lawyer, whoever it is, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go to trial and make my case because I'm not risking a life sentence. Is it just sentencing reform or is it more, co- is it more complex than that? Well, sentencing reform is a part of it. The, the issues that, that you're talking about, I would say more often than not have to deal with people who can't get out of jail. You know, so we're looking at the bond program in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So if you're charged with a crime, they're going to set a bond. Now, there's a disparity in what the level of the bonds are from crime to crime across the state because sure. we've got 77 counties and different judges see things in different ways. So in one county, you might get a $1,000 bond for, you know, maybe a felony. In another county, it could be 20000 So you got to come up with the money to get out of jail. If you can't come up with the money to get out of jail, you're going to sit in jail. When you're sitting in jail, that's kind of an incentive to get out of jail. And if the only way to get out of jail is to take a deal, you know, yeah, sure. now you're a convicted felon, but you're on probation. They're not going to put you in prison, you know, and they think they can deal with it, not thinking about all of the ramifications of being a convicted felon. You know, you don't get a gun, you don't get to vote, can't get a job, you know, the list goes on and on. Can't get some professional licenses. So that's a problem. Um, Criminal justice reform from the perspective of sentencing reform, I think, will go a long way toward helping with that problem. But the path of least resistance oftentimes is take a deal to get out of here. The question is, can you make it worth your while? Now, I had a case today. I've been on it for probably half a year. A woman was charged with a felony, and the state's rec was in no criminal history in mm-hmm. the past. I mean, she's never been convicted of anything. Uh, his rec was a five-year suspended sentence. Well, a five-year suspended sentence means they suspend your time in prison, so you're on probation, but you're a convicted felon. She was 57 years old, and I just didn't feel like she needed to be a convicted felon. And I fought with the DA and fought with the DA and fought with the DA about it, and finally I said, well, what if I do a blind plea with the judge? And, uh, and based on, and I had some familiarity with this judge, but I had never done a blind plea, and he said, he'll probably give you a deferred. Now, a deferred sentence is you're deferring the sentencing. You enter a plea of guilt. You defer the sentencing, and if you survive your probationary period, the case is dismissed. The advantage is you're not a convicted felon. The only thing you can't do at that time is you can't possess a gun while you're on felony probation. But you can still vote, and I think voting is the most important right anybody in this country has. Sure. So I won that deal, and uh, I laughed at him. He laughed at me, and, you know. I've been pretty effective in front of judges, so I've, I've had some good success. And uh, But I thought he was wrong. And there's a lot of DAs around the state. They've, they've only ever been prosecutors. Right. They've never been defense attorneys. They don't understand as much as somebody who's been a defense attorney and then been a prosecutor understand the impact of, of what they're doing You know, as prosecutors. They're the most powerful guys in the room. Uh, our criminal justice system is heavily weighted in their favor despite the uh, constitutional rights that people have to confront all of the evidence, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, uh, the prosecutors, have they've got all the power in the room because they make that charging decision, they get to wait. And in Oklahoma County, if you have a case that's going to go to trial, they will wait until 10 days before trial before they give you all of the evidence when they've been preparing a case for a year. 
you know, mm-hmm. that's not right in my mind. I need yeah. it, you know, the, and that's not the way the law is written, but that's the way they interpret it. And, and it's just not right. The, right. the way the law is written is you're supposed to give it to them as soon as possible. You know, you don't have to wait until 10 days before. The law says no later than 10 days before. But mm-hmm. that leaves all of the latitude and room to, to give that information to the defense counsel way ahead of time. But uh, that's another example of, of something that I think needs to be changed. Sure, sure. Well, Mark, we're about out of time for today, but I really appreciate you coming. Um, I have uh, one last question that is of zero consequence. It's just my own curiosity. What is your favorite sandwich? <laughs> I... I, I I don't know that I've ever thought about a favorite sandwich. My my kids ask what? me all the time, "What's you've, your favorite movie?" You've never thought about a favorite sandwich. I've never thought about a favorite sandwich. I you know, when I was when I, I was I was getting to like you. But <laughs> I, uh, well, well, I'll tell you this: when I was a kid, I can tell you my favorite sandwich was this this concoction that I put together when uh, I was a Boy Scout. Um, it uh, involved uh, melting uh, cheese and a tomato and onion, and it seems like one other thing, and uh, basically kind of a grilled cheese sandwich, and it was uh, it was pretty good. Ham, nice. maybe uh, ham or lunch meat of some yeah. sort. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was before avocados were invented. So. That's, right. <laughs> that's true. Like, it feels like about ten years ago. Everyone's like, "Hey, look at these things are pretty good." Do you yeah. have some like sultry sandwich music over there? I don't have any sultry sandwich music. I will say why I asked though is because I saw Ag Hunter at someplace else deli yesterday. Really? I walked in and there was like no one else in there, and I looked over and I was like, "I think that's the Attorney General." And I was with one of my coworkers, and they were like, "Who?" I was like. And she looks him up. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. And I didn't bother him. He was eating lunch. And, yeah. Um, but I so, just I just thought it was funny. And I was like, I wondered what kind of sandwich he got. I didn't yeah, ask him. Quick, was I guess I need, to, I need to take a walk card there. Because, well, you know, uh, it's in my neighborhood. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, a quick, and I know quick, he lives in Edmond. So. Quick plug for Someplace Else Deli. They got a great lunch special. They got a prime rib sandwich for four ninety five. It is it's absolute, delicious. It is mm-hmm. fantastic. They also have... They I mean, also, I, I'm not going to. They also have a corned beef sandwich. Oh, dude, pretty, it's pretty good. And I, I'm not going to pretend that I've had every cinnamon roll in town, but I have had a lot. <laughs> and and there's, dude, the cinnamon rolls at someplace else deli are just, the, I'll be like, like damn y'all, like you got to get you some of that. Yeah, we need some sultry sandwich music. I'll, I'll see what I can do, Mark. Um, before we leave here, how can people find out more about you? Well, I've got a website, uh, electmarkmiles.com. And if, for those of you out there, you, you can't see it, but Miles is spelled with a Y, M-Y-L-E-S. Uh, we're on Facebook, so Mark Miles for Attorney General. Those uh, two sites have tons of things out there, and, and you can also contribute to the campaign through the website. So uh, we're always looking for additional money to help us get our message out there, and uh, we appreciate everybody's support. Thanks for coming on. Good luck on November 6th. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks to our guest, Mark Miles, for being here. Thanks to Scott Melson for co-hosting with me every week. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and all those fancy apps. Don't forget to tell your friends, too, just like the fine folks I met this morning at Elemental. Thanks for uh, telling your significant other about us as well. Remember to uh, come to our event on November 6th at the Tower Theater, the election night show. I hope you can just Google that pretty soon and you'll find out the information. Look us up on YouTube as well. And let's fix this okay.org slash election night for all the details about that. It's also on Facebook. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at let's fix this okay. Scott is at SC Melson. I am at Andy OKC. Let's Fix This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network based right here in Oklahoma City. Some great podcasts 
also part of the Mostly Harmless Media family. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, and we strive to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government in meaningful ways. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. So show up and vote on November 6th. Have a great week, everybody.